0: welcome to from the haunted closet i'm your host anna and this week i will be all by myself with christmas approaching it was really hard for jamie and i to find a day when we would be able to both record um we both have little kids in our lives that we have to prepare christmas for and uh I hadn't been feeling well this past week, so it just really made it hard for us to try and collaborate at a time when we would both be able to work on the podcast. Um, and we just came to the conclusion that it would be easier for me to do this week by myself. I don't really have any updates for my life this past week. Um, I pulled my hamstring, which was another reason. It was really hard to collaborate because I just, I wasn't feeling well. Um, I was sledding with my kids. And my daughter has one of those sleds that you can either sit down or stand on. And I tried standing on it like a snowboard to go down the hill. And um, I got a friendly reminder from gravity that I am pushing 30 and can't do that anymore. So I've been kind of just laying around being a lump this past week, dealing with that. <laughs> well, This week I am talking about uh, Christmas ghost stories. Telling Christmas ghost stories really peaked in popularity in Victorian England. Um, however, its origin is unknown due to it being an oral tradition without written records until the creation of the printing press. Uh, Sarah Clento, a folklorist specializing in British literature and the founder of the Cartera School of Folklore. And I apologize if I mispronounced that. <laughs> um Has stated for a very, very, very long time, the season has provoked oral stories about spooky things in many different countries and cultures all over the world. Storytelling gave people something to do during the long, dark evenings prior to the invention of electricity. Which makes sense. I mean, if it's dark out, you can't. I mean, what are you going to do inside? This was before tv was before even lights so you could read books it makes sense that oral stories would be very popular once the steam-powered printing press was invented written word became more widely available to everyone editors quickly began publishing these christmas ghost stories the uncertainty of this time also contributed to the interest in the genre according to Brittany. Warman, a folklorist specializing in gothic literature, and co-founder of the Carteret School of Folklore and the Fantastic. Interest was driven, she says, by the rise of industrialization, the rise of science, and the looming fall of Victorian Britain as, the super, as a superpower. All of these things were in people's minds and made the world seem a little bit darker and a little bit scarier. Probably the most common ghost story taking place around Christmas or the holidays is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Everyone has heard of it, I'm sure. Um, Although A Christmas Carol was an immediate bestseller in the United States, the ghost story tradition didn't take off the way that it had prior in Europe. The popularity of A Christmas Carol had much more to do with Charles Dickens being the author, as he already had a huge following in the Americas. Another reason scary stories never took off as a Christmas tradition in the United States as was seen more as strictly a Halloween tradition which had a much bigger celebration in the United States than it did in Europe at the time. And then I did prepare a few stories for me to read during this episode as well. Smee is a ghost story by A.M rage about a group of young people who play a game of hide-and-seek in a haunted house where a young girl died no said jackson with a deprecatory smile i'm sorry i don't want to upset your game but i'm not playing any games of hide-and-seek it was christmas eve and we were a party of 14 with just the proper evening of youth we had dined well it was the season for childish games and we were all in the mood for playing them all that is except jackson When somebody suggested hide-and-seek, there was repertorous and almost unanimous approval. He was the one dissident voice. It was not like Jackson to spoil sport or refuse to do as others wanted. Somebody asked him if he were feeling steady. No, he answered. I feel perfectly fit, thanks. But, he added with a smile, which softened without retracting the flat refusal, I'm not playing hide-and-seek. "'Why not?' someone asked. "'He hesitated for a moment before replying. "'I sometimes go and stay at a house where a girl was killed. "'She was playing hide-and-seek in the dark. "'She didn't know the house very well. "'There was a door that led to the servant's staircase. "'When she was chased, she thought the door led to a bedroom. "'She opened the door and jumped and landed at the bottom of the stairs. "'She broke her neck, of course. "'We all looked serious.' "'Mrs. Fernley said, "'How terrible! "'And were you there when it happened?' Jackson shook his head sadly. No, he said, but I was there when something else happened, something worse. What could be worse than that? This was, said Jackson. He hesitated for a moment, and then he said, I wonder if any of you have ever played a game called Smee. It's much better than Hide and Seek. The name come from It's Me, of course. Perhaps you'd like to play it instead of Hide and Seek. Let me tell you the rules of the game. Every player is given a sheet of paper. All the sheets except one are blank. On the last sheet of paper it is written Smee. Nobody knows who Smee is except Smee himself or herself. You turn out the lights and Smee goes quietly out of the room and hides. After a time the others go off to search for Smee. But of course they don't know who they are looking for. When one player meets another, he challenges him by saying, Smee. The other player answers, Smee, and they continue searching. But the real Smee doesn't answer when someone challenges. The second player stays quietly beside him. Presently, they will be discovered by a third player. He will challenge and receive no answer. He will join the first two. This goes on until all the players are in the same place. The last one to find Smee has to pay a forfeit. It's a good, noisy, amusing game. In a big house, it often takes a long time for everyone to find me. Perhaps you'd like to try. I'd happily pay my forfeit and sit here by the fire while you play. It sounds a good game, I remarked. Have you played it too, Jackson? Yes, he answered. I played it in the house that I was telling you about. And she was there? The girl who broke? No, no, said someone else. He told us he wasn't there when she broke her neck. Jackson thought for a moment, "I don't know if she was there or not. I'm afraid she was. I know that there were thirteen of us playing the game, and there were only twelve in the house and I don't know how the I don't know the dead girl's name when I heard that whisper name in the dark i didn't It didn't worry me, but I tell you, I'm never going to play that kind of game again. It made me quite nervous for a long time. I prefer to pay my forfeit at once." We all stared at him. His words did not make sense at all. Tim Voice was the kind man, kindest man in the world. He smiled at us. This sounds like an interesting story, he said. Come on, Jackson. You can tell it to us instead of paying a forfeit. Very well, said Jackson, and here is his story. Have you met the Sangstons? They are cousins of mine, and they live in Surrey. Five years ago, they invited me to go and spend Christmas with them. It was an old house with lots of unnecessary passages and staircases. A stranger could get lost in quite easily. While I went down for that Christmas, Violet Stagston promised me that I knew most of the other guests. Unfortunately, I couldn't get away from my job until Christmas Eve. All the other guests had arrived there the previous day. I was the last to arrive, and I was only just in time for dinner. I said hello to everyone I knew, and Violet introduced me to the people I didn't know. That is perhaps why I didn't hear the name of the tall, dark-haired, handsome girl who I hadn't met before. Everyone was in rather a hurry, and I am always bad at catching people's names. She looked cold and clever. She didn't look at all friendly, but she looked interesting, and I wondered who she was. I didn't ask, because I was sure that someone would speak to her by name during the meal. Unluckily, however, I was a long way from her at the table. I was sitting next to Mrs. Gorman, and as usual, Mrs. Gorman was being very bright and amusing. Her conversation is always worth listening to, and I completely forgot to ask the name of the dark proud girl. There were twelve of us, including the Sagstons themselves. We were all young, or trying to be young. Jack and Violet Sangston were the oldest at their seventeen- and their 17-year-old son, Reggie, was the youngest. It was Reggie who suggested Smee when when the talking turned to games. He told us the rules of the game, just as I described them to you. Jack Sangston warned us all, if you're going to play games in the dark, he said, please be careful of the back stairs on the first floor. A door leads to them, and I'm often thought about taking that door down. In the dark, a stranger to the house could think they were walking into a room. A girl nearly did break her neck on those stairs. I asked how it happened. It was about ten years ago, before we came here. There was a party, and they were playing hide-and-seek. This girl was looking for somewhere to hide. She heard someone coming and rang along the passage to get away. She opened the door, thinking it led to a bedroom. She planned to hide there until the seeker was gone. Unfortunately, it was the door that led to the back stairs. She fell straight down to the bottom of the stairs. She was dead when they picked her up. We all promised to be careful. Missus Gorman even made a little joke about living to be ninety. You see, none of us had known the poor girl, and we did not feel sad on Christmas Eve. We did not want to feel sad on Christmas Eve. Well, we all started the game immediately after dinner. Young Reggie Sangston went around making sure all the lights were off except the ones in the service ro- servants' rooms and in the sitting room where we were. We then prepared twelve sheets of paper. Eleven of them were blank, and one of them had Smee written on it. Reggie mixed them all up. Then we each took one. The person who got the paper with Smee on it had to hide. I looked at mine and saw that it was blank. A moment later, all the electric lights went out. In the darkness, I heard someone moving very quietly to the door. After a minute, everybody blew up. After a minute, somebody blew a whistle, and we all rushed to the door. I had no idea who was Smee. For five or ten minutes, we were all rushing up and down the passages and in and out of the rooms, challenging each other, whispering, Smee, Smee. After a while, the noise died down, and I guessed that someone had found Smee. After a time, I found a group of people all sitting on the narrow stairs. I challenged and received no answer. So Smee was there. I hurriedly joined the group. Presently, two more players arrived. Each one was hurrying to avoid being last. Jake Sangston was last and was given a forfeit. I think we're all here now, aren't we? he remarked. He lit a match, looked up the staircase, and began to count. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, he said, and then laughed. That's silly. There's one too many. The match went out, and he lit another and counted. He got as far as twelve, then he looked puzzled. There are thirteen people here, he said. I haven't counted myself yet. Oh nonsense! I laughed. You probably began with yourself, and now you want to count yourself twice. His son took out his electric torch. It began. It gave a better light than the matches, and we all began to count. Of course, we were all. There were twelve of us. Jack laughed. Well, he said, "I, w- I was sure I counted thirteen twice." From halfway up the stairs, Violet Sangston spoke nervously. I thought there was somebody sitting two steps in front of me. Have you moved, Captain Ramson? The captain said he hadn't. But I thought there was somebody sitting between Mrs. Sagston and me. Just for a moment, there was an uncomfortable something in the air. A cold finger seemed to touch us all. For a moment, we all felt something odd and unpleasant and just had just happened and was unlikely to happen again. Then we laughed at ourselves and at each other, and we felt normal again. There were only twelve of us, and that was that. Still laughing, we marched back to the sitting room and began. Again. This time, I was me. Violet Sangston found me while I was searching for a hiding place. That game didn't last long. Soon there were twelve people, and the game was over. Violet felt cold and wanted her jacket. Her husband went up to their bedroom to fetch it. As soon as she got, Reggie touched me on the arm, and he was looking pale and sick. Quick, he whispered. I've got to talk to you. Something horrible has happened. We walked into the, back room. We walked into the breakfast room. What's the matter, I asked. I don't know. You were Smee last time, weren't you? Well, of course. I don't know who Smee was. While Mother and the others ran to the west side of the house and found you, I went east. There's a deep, closed cupboard in my bedroom. It looked like a good hiding place. I thought that perhaps Smee might be there. I opened the door in the dark and touched somebody's hand. Smee? I whispered. There was no answer. I thought I'd found Smee. Well, I don't, I don't understand it, but I suddenly had a strange cold feeling. I can't describe it, but I felt something was wrong. So I turned on my electric torch and nobody was there. Now I am sure I touched a hand and nobody could get out of the cupboard because I was standing in the doorway. What do you think? You imagined that you touched a hand, I said. He gave a short laugh. I knew you would say that, he said. Of course I imagined it. That's the only sp- explanation, isn't it? I agreed with him. I couldn't see that he still i could see that he still felt shaking. Together we returned to the sitting room for another game of Smee, and the others were all ready and waiting to start again. Perhaps it was my imagination, although I'm almost sure it was not. But I had a feeling that nobody was really enjoying the game anymore. But everyone was too polite to mention it. All the same, I had a feeling that something was wrong. All the fun had gone on to the game. Something deep inside me was telling me to. was trying. Something deep inside of me was trying to warn me. Take care, it said. Take care. There was some unnatural, unhealthy influence at work in the house. Why did I have this feeling? Did Jack Sangston. because Jack Sangston had counted 13 people instead of 12? because his son imagined he had touched someone's hand in an empty cupboard. I tried to laugh at myself, but did not succeed. Well, we started again. When we were all chasing the unknown Smee, we were all as noisy as ever, but it seemed to me that most of us were just acting. We were no longer enjoying the game. At first I played with the others, but after several, no Smee was found. But after several minutes, no Smee was found. I left the main group and started searching on the first floor, the west side of the house. And there, while I was feeling my way along, I bumped into a pair of human knees. I put out my own hand and touched a soft, heavy curtain. Then I knew where I was. There were tall, deep windows with a window seat at the end of the passage. The curtains reached into the, the curtains reached to the ground. Somebody was sitting in the corner of one of the window seats behind the curtain. Aha! I thought, I've caught Smee. So I pulled the curtain to one side and touched a woman's arm. It was a dark, moonless night outside. I couldn't see the woman sitting in the corner of the window seat. Smee, I whispered. There was no, um, there was no answer. When Smee is challenged, he or she does not answer. So I sat down beside her to wait for the others. Then I whispered, what's your name? And out of the darkness, beside me, the whisper came. Brenda Ford. I did not know the name, but I guessed at once who she was. I knew every girl in the house by name except one, and that was the tall, pale, dark girl. So here she was sitting beside me on the window seat, shut in between a heavy curtain and a window. I was beginning to enjoy the game. I wondered if she was enjoying it too. I whispered one or two rather ordinary questions to her and received no answer. Smee is a game of silence. It is a rule that the game of Smee... the other person or persons who have found me have to be quiet. This of course makes it harder for the others to find them. But there was nobody else around. I wondered therefore why she had insisted on silence. I spoke again and got no answer. I began to feel a little annoyed. Perhaps she is one of those cold clever girls who have a poor opinion of all men, I thought. She doesn't like me and she's using the rules of the game as an excuse for not speaking. "'Well, if she doesn't like sitting here with me, I certainly don't want to sit with her.' "'I turned away from her. I hope someone finds us soon,' I thought. "'As I sat there, I realized that I disliked sitting besides this girl very much indeed. "'That was strange. The girl I had seen at dinner had seemed likable in a cold kind of way. "'I noticed her and wanted to know more about her, but now I felt really uncomfortable beside her. "'The feeling of something wrong, something unnatural, was growing.' I remember touching her arm and trembling with horror. I wanted to jump and run away. I prayed that someone else would come along soon. Just then, I heard light footsteps in the passage. Someone on the other side of the curtain brushed against my knee. The curtain moved to one side, and the girl's hand touched my shoulder. Smee? whispered a voice that I recognized at once. It was Mrs. Gorman. Of course she received my answer. She came and sat down beside me, and at once I felt very much better. It's Tony Jackson, isn't it? She whispered. Yes, I whispered back. You're not Smee, are you? No, she's on my other side. She reached out across me. I heard her fingernails scratch a woman's silk dress. Hello, Smee. How are you? Who are you? Oh, is it against the rules to talk? Never mind. Tony, we'll break the ru- we'll break the rules. Don't you know, Tony? This is this game is beginning to annoy me a little. I hope they aren't going to play out all evening. I'd like to play a nice, quiet game altogether besides a warm fire. Me too, I agreed. Can't you suggest something to them? There's something rather unhealthy about this particular game. I'm sure I'm being very silly, but I can't get rid of the idea that we've got an extra player, somebody who's ought not to be here at all. That was exactly how I felt, but I didn't say so. However, I felt very much better. Mrs. Mrs. Gorman's arrival had chased away my fear. We sat talking, "'I wonder when the others will find us,' said Mrs. Gorman. "'After a time, we heard the sound of feet, "'and young Reggie's voice shouting, "'Hello, hello, is anybody here?' "'Yes,' I answered. "'Is Mrs. Gorman with you?' "'Yes.' "'What happened to you?' "'You've both got forfeits. "'We're all waiting for you for hours.' "'But you haven't found Smee yet,' I complained. "'You haven't.' "'You mean, I was Smee this time, "'but Smee's right over here,' I cried.' "'Yes,' agreed Mrs. Gorman. "'The curtain was pulled back, and we sat looking into the eye of Reggie's electric torch. "'I looked at Mrs. Gorman, and then on my other side. "'Between me and the wall was an empty space on the window seat. "'I stood up at once. "'Then I sat down again. "'I was feeling very sick, and the whole world seemed to be going round and round. "'There was somebody there,' I insisted, "'because I touched her. "'So did I,' said Mrs. Gorman, in a trembling voice.' And I don't think anyone could leave this window seat without us knowing. Reggie gave a shaky laugh. I remember his unpleasant unpleasant experience earlier that evening. Somebody's been playing jokes. He said, are you coming down? We were not very popular when we came down to the sitting room. I found the two of them sitting behind a curtain on the window seat, said Reggie. I went up to the tall, dark girl. So you pretended to be Smee and... "'And then went away,' I accused her. She shook her head. Afterwards, we all played cards in the sitting room, and I was very glad. Some time later, Jack Sangston wanted to talk to me. I could see that he was rather cross with me, and soon told me the reason. "'Tony,' he said. "'I suppose you are in love with Mrs. Gorman. That's your business, but please don't make love to her in my house during a game. You kept everyone waiting. It is very rude of you, and I am ashamed of you.' "'But we were not alone,' I protested. "'There was somebody else there, somebody who was pretending to be Smee. "'I believe it was the tall, dark girl, Mrs. Ford. "'She whispered her name to me. "'Of course, she refused to admit it afterwards.' "'Jack Sangston stared at me. "'Miss who?' he breathed. "'Brenda Ford,' she said. "'Jack put a hand on my shoulder. "'Look here, Tony,' he said. "'I don't mind a joke, but enough is enough. "'We don't want to worry the ladies.' Brenda Ford is the name of the girl who broke her neck on the stairs. She was playing hide-and-seek there 10 years ago. There is one story I'm going to read from Reddit called A Christmas Ghost Story by user deathhamster1 and this was posted to Reddit No Sleep. I have to admit I'm not a fan of Christmas. Not due to any Scrooge-like tendencies or anything, but because of what I saw when I was 7. I was very excited to see that I was going to get On Christmas Day, you see. So I crept down the stairs at two or so in the morning. The grandmother clock in the hallway was ticking slowly. I remember it only too well. I found myself shaking as I turned the living room doorknob. Was I that excited? Why did the metal feel so cold? So as not to wake my parents, I slowly pushed the door open. It would not squeak if you did it too fast. It would squeak if you did it too fast, and crept into the living room. It was dark and cold. I mean, so cold I could make out my breath, and what little light that was there. Was the heat broken? The switch to the dimmer lights was next to the door. I turned it and slowly turned the dial. In the diminishing gloom, I could make out the armchairs and the Christmas tree, beneath which I could already see a glimpse of presents. And the leering skinless face that was now just an inch away from me. Its pupil eyes seemed to stare straight through me as ozone. The thing reared back, its lipless face falling back behind the ragged hood it wore. It turned away and lurched and limped towards the tree. I could see more of it now. It was stooped and withered, emaciated and cadaverous draped with the rotting rags of what I guessed must have been once a robe the thing seemed mesmerized by the tree its head swiveled eerily from side to side as it contemplated what was before it then it turned and looked directly at me lifting a long bony finger to its face where its lips may have once been my mouth was agape I was rooted to the spot. I tried to scream, but no noise came out. Finally, I managed to slowly retreat from the living room, turning off the light as I went. I closed the door quietly and crept up the stairs, too petrified to do anything else. I ran to my room and hid under my covers. Only then did I manage to finally, silently sob with fear. The next morning, I put on a brave face and pretended to be excited as I unwrapped my presents and everything else. Mom must have known there was something wrong, as she asked if I was okay. I lied and said I was just tired, as I couldn't sleep the night before. As you do when you're seven, it's Christmas Eve. She hesitated for a moment, but brushed it off as we picked up all the torn wrapping paper left behind. As the years have drawn on, I've pondered this in some detail. We've forgotten what Christmas really is. It is how we used to survive in the darkest grimmest time of the year that's what all the tinsel and merry making and santa claus all stems from that need to shut out the darkness and the howling blizzard outside yeah i think there's something else too all that crap about christmas being magical is true we dress it up with elves and reindeer and red noses but it's more than that there's a reason why we used to tell ghost stories at christmas till halloween took over it is the one point of year where the boundaries between this world and others are the thinnest. No wonder they have festivals and nativity this time of year. Consciously or not, we're, wandering off, we're warding off the horror that seeps into our world during yuletide. Maybe all the rituals, tacky though they are these days, appease the things that wait and ward them off for another year. What's a Christmas tree but an old pagan totem decorating decorated in candles, a ward, or an appeasement? These days, I just blot it out of my mind and pretend I'm Buddhist or something, but there's one last thing that I will never forget. All those years ago, the next night, the scrawled note I found under my pillow, and it just said one word, shh. The last story I'm going to read is Haunted Christmas, a spooky Wisconsin ghost story retold by S.E. Schlosser. The soft thud of following footsteps echoed behind him as he hurried through the snowflakes towards home. They kept pace with him, quickening when he quickened and slowing when he slowed. It was creepy. His flesh crawled at the sound and he sped up, cursing himself for walking home alone from the midnight mass. Normally not a poised man, the middle-aged bachelor had suddenly been struck by a wish to hear the old Christmas songs sung once again by a church choir and had walked across town to attend the service. Now he regretted his choice as he passed the dark house after dark house in the snowy night and the footsteps never followed, ever followed. He sped up until he was nearly running and skidded into his street. "'A few more paces behind him to the bottom of his front stairs, "'and as he dashed up them, he realized suddenly "'that the following footsteps had ceased abruptly. "'He glanced behind him at the cross street "'from which he had just turned "'and saw only one pair of footsteps in the snow-covered street "'when there should have been two. "'He frowned in puzzlement and then shuddered "'as a cold breeze struck him, driving snow against his collar and slammed against the door. Almost it seemed to pass through the door, but that was superstitious nonsense. His head was shaking as he unlocked the front door and hurried inside. He expected darkness, but was delighted to see the yellow glow of firelight coming from his study doorway upstairs. His old housekeeper, whom he thought firmly asleep in her attic bedroom, must have lit the fire— pending his return. He shrugged out of his coat and paused for a moment, amazed to find it still warm and dry, though he walked for more than a mile through the snow-cold storm. It was almost as if he'd been walking in a bubble of calm air, though he remembered the soft snowflakes hitting his face when he stepped out of the church before the mysterious footsteps began. He shuddered. His shudder was interrupted by the shout of greeting as his old friend Andy came hurrying out of the study. His face lit up in a grin at the unexpected surprise. The two men shook heads heartily and retreated back into the warmth of the firelight, talking to, talking so fast that they stumbled over each other's words. Andy had left town years ago to take a government job in D.C., and they hadn't seen each other since. Nearly an hour passed before it occurred to him that his guest might have been hungry. He offered him his offer of a meal was instantly accepted, but Andy was unwilling to leave the comfort of the fire to go eat in the kitchen. So he jogged downstairs alone to, catch some, to fetch some food. He didn't wonder at his friend's reluctance to join him in the kitchen. Andy had looked very pale, and kept shivering with cold while they talked. He hoped his friend wasn't ailing for anything. A few moments later, he was back with warmed-up meal, with warmed-up meat and potatoes and a couple glasses of beer apologizing profusely as he handed Andy a plate for the mismatched dinnerware Andy just laughed and hung and hunkered down to eat when they were both finished he showed his friend to a guest room and then tumbled into his own bed to sleep all his hampery headsho caused by the mysterious footsteps forgotten the visit of his friend. He jumped out of bed Christmas morning and dashed immediately downstairs to the guest room to rouse his friend. Andy wasn't there and the bed had not been slept on. That was odd. He ran down to look in the study but Andy wasn't there either. And one plate full of food was sitting at the end table besides his friend's old chair. It was completely untouched though he'd seen Andy eating it the night before. Skin creeping at the thought. He ran to the kitchen and asked his housekeeper if she had seen Andy. But the housekeeper had seen no one either the previous night or this morning. He flopped down at the bottom step of the staircase, completely baffled. Where had Andy gone? It was a mystery that plagued him all Christmas Day, and he did not enjoy his holiday dinner at all. A fact that annoyed his housekeeper. He was awkward the next morning from a restless sleep by the sound of... a front doorbell. He stumbled out of bed with a splash of water from his bedside pitcher into his sleepy eyes when a knock came at his bedroom door. When he answered, his housekeeper handed him a telegram that had just arrived. She hurried back downstairs to prepare his breakfast. He opened it curiously, not knowing who would be telegraphing him so urgently. As he read the telegram, he started to tremble. The message was short and to the point. Andy's family regretted to inform him that his old friend Andy had passed away on Christmas Eve in his hometown in Washington, D.C. He sat down hard on the bed. The telegram fluttered away from his hand. It must have been Andy who had followed him on Christmas Eve. That would explain the eerie footsteps and the dry coat in the middle of the snowstorm. He spent Christmas Eve with a ghost. Those ghost stories were definitely creepy to me, and I hope that you enjoyed them as much as I did. Um, I think the scariest one to me was the first one that I read. Just me. Uh, it just was very unsettling, and even though it was very predictable, I still like uh, Goosebumps and Chills at the end. Um, although, honestly, I did with all of them. I thought they were all really creepy, and that's why I picked them to read during this episode. This episode is... I apologize that it is shorter than usual. Um, I, we weren't originally planning on it just being me this time. But, you know, it's okay. It is what it is. If you haven't yet, check us out on Instagram uh, from The Haunted Closet. If there's ever any pictures or anything, I wear links. I try to add them on the Instagram so that they are easily accessible. The sources I used for the podcast today were History Channel. Or history.com, uh, scaryforkids.com, and Americanfolklore.net. See you next time. Don't let the Christmas go sketch you. Bye. <laughs>